Jean Khan, and this is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Each week, we explore how beliefs shape our world, our politics, and our culture. In some faith communities, certain rituals can only be performed in special places, off-limits to outsiders. But sometimes, the doors are opened. Good morning. We are so pleased to have you here with us today. My name is Anne Golightly. I've been asked to be the MC, And we are here for a very special press conference and tour of the Washington, D.C. Temple of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We have been waiting so long for this opportunity, and we're so glad that you are here with us. The Washington, D.C. Temple of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has been closed to the public since it was dedicated as a sacred space in 1974. For more than 40 years, only church members have entered the white marble building with its six soaring towers, each topped with gold spires in West Kensington, Maryland. If you are in the Washington, D.C. region and you drive around the infamous Beltway, the Mormon Temple is a visual landmark that is unmistakable. During rush hour, when the sun is setting, the white marble sets against the blue sky and it becomes impossible to miss. And it feels magical. With its gothic arches, it has a majestic presence as it rises above the tree line, 233 feet above. It sits on 55 acres surrounded by trees. When my kids were little, they were fascinated by it. My youngest once exclaimed it was Disneyland, while the older one corrected him and said, no, it's Congress. I corrected both, explaining that it was a special temple. And then, like kids, they had questions. Most, I couldn't answer. That is, until last week. This media day is set aside as sort of our first kickoff to a public open house of a building that's been closed for over 50 years to the public. Everyone that has an interest to come see the inside of this building, this special holy house of God, has that opportunity. For the last four years, the D.C. Temple has undergone a massive renovation, taking it out of commission as a sacred space. But now, the work is complete, and the big bronze double doors are open to the public until June 11th. In the fall, the temple will be rededicated and once again open only to church members. Earlier this month, before the public open house, the D.C. Temple welcomed reporters for a tour. On a drizzly and overcast day, the parking lot was filled to capacity. Our producer, Kevin McCarthy, and I joined media colleagues assembled. On the way in, I met a colleague from the New York Times who doesn't cover religion for the paper, but she explained to me that she jumped at the opportunity because she lives near the iconic temple. And this open house is a rare chance to learn about the rituals that take place inside. For most of us, it's a mystery. As the organizers hoped, we came away with a better understanding of who Mormons are and why they do what they do. God offers each of us a sacred place of peace and healing and purpose where we can connect with heaven, where we can connect with each other, and we can connect with our truest, noblest self. Come and see. 
Welcome to the house of the Lord. But before we walk through the temple together, we need a refresher course on the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and its place in the American religious landscape. How did this faith community, often described as Mormonism, move from the fringe to the mainstream? How did it grow from an American-born sect to a global religion? And how do the controversies that have dogged it for decades continue to challenge its image and status? By historical standards, the LDS Church is young. It was founded in 1830 in upstate New York by a young farmer named Joseph Smith and a half dozen of his followers. Smith said he was visited by an angel named Moroni, who gave him a set of golden plates that contained another testament of Jesus Christ. The angel told him this testament would restore the true church. Using two transparent stones left with the plates, Smith set about translating them into what would become the Book of Mormon. Only 11 members of the new church testified that they had seen the plates. Smith claimed he returned them to Moroni after the translation was done. They have never been seen again. After the Book of Mormon was published in 1830, Smith's faithful were quickly chased west by Christian neighbors who thought their beliefs and rituals were at least bizarre, if not downright blasphemous. They constructed their first temple in Kirtland, Ohio, and dedicated it in 1836. It still stands, but is now owned by the Community of Christ, an offshoot of the original LDS Church, and is open to the public. The Mormons didn't stay long in Ohio. Smith said he received another revelation to take his followers to western Missouri, where he said Jesus would make his eventual return. But Missouri didn't want the Mormons. Its governor even issued an extermination order against them. There were battles, massacres, and other violence committed by both Missourians and Mormons. By 1838, the Mormons were forced to retreat east to Nauvoo, Illinois, where they began construction on their second temple in 1841. But in June 1844, Joseph Smith and his brother Hiram were imprisoned in a Carthage, Missouri jail, charged with treason and inciting a riot. Vigilantes shot and killed them both. Joseph Smith at the time was 38 years old. The rest of the story has become part of the American myth. A new leader, Brigham Young, led the shattered Mormons out of Nauvoo and the Midwest, across the Great Plains, and into what was then the Utah Territory. On the shores of the Great Lake, Young is believed to have declared, this is the place. First thing the tens of thousands of Mormons did was erect a temple, their third. The Salt Lake City Temple was dedicated in 1850. Today, there are 282 temples around the world serving 16 million church members. The U.S. and Canada have the most temples, followed by South America. There are temples scattered across Central and Southern Africa, 
across Europe, India, and the Far East. 170 have been dedicated and are only open to church members, and another 49 are under construction. It is the church's practice to open a temple to the public for a few weeks prior to its dedication. So, the chance to enter the D.C. temple after its renovation and before its rededication is rare. When we come back, we head inside the D.C. temple for a preview tour of the public open house. I'm Umbreen Khan, and you're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. We'll be back after this short break. friends, I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you, and let's get back to the show. This is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. If you're just joining, this week we're taking a unique tour inside the D.C. Temple of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Now, over the last 20 years, I've been to many open houses for houses of worship, but never a Mormon temple. This was a first. I found my way into the Temple Visitor Center in Kensington, Maryland. I was there with a lot of others, 150 reporters from global, national, and local media outlets, all interested in going inside. But before we did, there was a press conference, and on the stage sat leaders from both church and state, including Maryland Governor Larry Hogan. I want to congratulate you and all of the other leaders of this wonderful celebration of faith, community, and fellowship. It truly is uh, an honor to be here with all of you once again and to have this opportunity to visit this magnificent temple, which is being uh, rededicated after four years of renovations and is opening its doors to the public for the first time in 50 years. 
Since 1974, this incredible temple with its beautiful towering spires has been an iconic landmark in the Maryland skyline along the Capitol Beltway, and it has been a beacon of hope for the more than 40,000 Marylanders who are members of this church. The number of members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has grown in the Washington, D.C. region from 20,000 to 150,000. Today, the community of believers and its leaders are influencing business, culture, philanthropy, and politics. Mormon voters are a powerful constituency in the American West and Republican Party. In 2012, Senator Mitt Romney made history, becoming the first Mormon to win the presidential nomination of a major political party. As part of the opening, Senator Romney led a delegation of colleagues from the United States Senate on a public tour. Now, today, there are 170 Mormon temples in the world, with another 49 under construction and another 63 in the planning stages. Now, they're not to be confused with churches. No weekly sermons or choir practice in the temple. Those kinds of things happen in local churches that serve members in geographic areas Mormons call wards. In contrast to church, the temple is a dedicated sacred space where each room has a function and where Mormons perform special rites and sacraments, what they call ordinances, that they believe draw back the curtain between our world and the divine. As Governor Hogan said, the temple is usually open only to Mormons. Each must receive what's called a temple recommend from his or her local bishops to conduct ordinances there. The LDS Church has no ordained clergy, and the priesthood is open to only men. And for most of its history, it was open only to white men. We'll learn a little bit more about the experience of Black members a little later in the program. Meanwhile, let's walk through the temple, something you can do between now and June 11th. Like virtually all sites of Mormon interest or history, the church requires visitors to be escorted by a missionary or other church member. There is no wandering around here, and no photographs are allowed. But you can see the official church photos of each of the rooms we visit at dctemple.org. Our tour guide is Garrett W. Gong. He's a member of the church's highest governing body, called the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. You'll notice as we move through the temple that 12 is a very important number to Mormons. In the Bible, 12 is the number of the tribes of Israel, of Jesus' apostles, and of the gates of the New Jerusalem described in the book of Revelations. Joseph Smith, who founded the church in 1830, believed he and his followers were living in the end times, the last days before Jesus' prophesied return. Welcome to the Washington, D.C. Temple. We're so delighted that each of you are here, and we hope very much that this will be the visit, the tour that you're hoping for. The first thing we do is cross an entry bridge from the visitor center into the actual temple. Volunteers are seated out front and invite us to place shoe covers on our shoes. It reminded me of when I visit a Sikh Gurdwara or a Muslim masjid or mosque, how I'm asked to remove my shoes out of reverence before entering. Even as we come inside and as we go across the bridge, 
symbolically we're leaving kind of the bustle and the noise of the outside outside and we're coming to a different place all of the design elements in the temple lead us upward part of the verticality is a reminder that we're moving spiritually we're starting here we're having experiences that lead us here that's one element another element we hope you'll feel is a kind of peace and serenity people have come and said it's the most peaceful place they've ever been in crossing over the bridge into the entry we move into a space that is gleaming the colors design and furniture remind me of a high-end hotel high ceilings sparkling fixtures and spacious walkways with lots of group seating areas, clusters of couches and chairs, creating a sense that this is a place where groups who come can gather for meetings and conversation, just like in the large guest foyer of a fancy hotel. As we walk into the baptistry now, our first stop, Elder Gong explains that for Mormons, entering the temple is like entering a time tunnel. Tune out the distractions of the world and focus on the spiritual matters, including connection to eternal family members. Mormons believe the temple is where they connect with their ancestors. Families are eternal. All ancestors will be united after death and after the return of Jesus. To achieve that, all family members must be baptized as Mormon. So it isn't surprising to me that the center of this paneled room holds a vast white marble tub filled with water. What is surprising is the tub supported by marble figures, 12 large horned oxen. We are seated in front in a gallery, positioned in such a way that I can imagine people assembled would gather to witness what's taking place in front in the large baptism tub equipped with stairs and stainless steel railing. While we take in the size of the tub, which could easily hold six or more people, Gong draws comparisons between his beliefs and other faith traditions. Our Jewish friends always talk about the baptistry in terms of the mikvah, the ceremonial place of washing. Our Islamic friends, our Muslim friends, talk about the fact that We can do things for those who can't do them on their own, even the Hajj. And in our tradition, we think of those who maybe didn't have an opportunity to participate in the sacred promises that God invites all of us to be part of. And the baptism is one of the places where that begins. Mormons believe that they can baptize their dead. It's one of the reasons ancestry and family history are so central to their lives. But baptism for the dead became one of the most controversial practices of the church when it was revealed in the 1990s that some were baptizing Holocaust victims, including Anne Frank and other famous dead non-Mormons. The LDS Church officially asked members to stop this practice. On our tour, Elder Gong's wife, Susan, explains how proxy baptism works. So, of course, the temple is a place where we... um do vicarious work for our ancestors. It connects the generations. And so when you have the information about your ancestors, you can then take the name to the temple, 
you dress in white and you stand in as proxy to make the same promises that we have made as uh, members of the church. So it's a way of the scripture in the Old Testament in Malachi is you turn the hearts of the children to the fathers and the fathers to the children. And we think that's what's happening in these ordinances that we do for our ancestors. As Susan Gong explains, Mormons believe that after death, a person's spiritual journey can continue. It can evolve, that a person can choose to join the church and be sealed to a family, even in death. She shares with me the story of her 19th century ancestor that she baptized by proxy. She gets emotional as she describes doing the genealogy and preparing for the ritual. What we believe we can do for them is we can give them the blessings of salvation through baptism and through temple covenants. And so when you have the information about your ancestors, you can then take the name to the temple. So we believe spirits are eternal. And so while James Cunningham is no longer on the earth, there still is a James Cunningham in spirit. And he, like us, has moral agency, and he can choose um, to accept that offering or not. From the baptistry, we move to the changing room. Much like locker rooms at a spa, there are two designated dressing areas, one for men, another for women, each with privacy rooms for changing and lockers. In keeping with the idea that the temple is a bridge to heaven, Mormons change into what are called temple garments, flowing white robes they wear only here. Elder Gong explains. Everyone dressed essentially the same in a way that shows our equality before God and equality with each other. We uh, aren't worried about our titles. We're not worried about our uh, jewelry, if I can say that. We, we come and we try to put aside the worldly things. We leave them in the locker. In a way, you try to leave your concerns and worries there, too. The temple garments and description reminded me of the way Muslims dress during the Hajj pilgrimage. Very much the same intention— wearing the same clothes to remove the status and distinctions between adherents. We move now from the changing room to the instruction rooms. This is where Mormon visitors hear messages from local elders or bishops. Like all the other rooms in the temple, there are no windows to this outside world. It looks like a small movie theater, with seats arranged facing a lectern. This is where Mormon visitors hear messages from local elders or bishops. I wondered if this was a place akin to Sunday school. It is not. The temple is a special place of instruction. We think of it, if you want to use an analogy, like a graduate school. It's not exactly that. So you you live a certain way. You've learned certain things about God and faith before you come to the temple. And so that's what this would be, is a kind of further instruction on things of divinity. From baptism to changing into robes to instruction, the next stop is up another level. We climb the stairs and enter through big towering doors, and we're asked to remain silent and take a seat. The room is large, and unlike the others, it's oval. The ceiling is high and crowned by a series of crystal chandeliers. 12 to be exact, encircling the room. In the center sits a large chandelier, all symmetrically shaped to create that sense that you are in the stars. 
Beneath the glimmering lights, we are seated on couches and chairs with another ring of seats along the wall. Everything is white or beige or neutral with dashes of gold and warm colors. This is the celestial room, a space designed to invoke the Mormon idea of heaven and a place to connect with the divine, and it is a place set aside for prayer and reflection. There are no windows, nothing to distract the mind from prayer and thought. When we left this room, Elder Gong asked if anyone wanted to share how it felt to be in there, and a woman spoke up. What did your heart's core, your deep heart's core, tell you or make you feel when we were in this last room? Anything you'd like to share? And like you said, the peace is unmatched in here. Like you have to make time to have communion with God. And this is time that we're not going to get back. And I'm happy that, you know, I'm spending my day here these few hours. And that's what I was able to think about when we were in that celestial room. Thank you. We say sacred space, sacred time. After the celestial room, we are escorted into what's called the ceiling room. Now, these are smaller rooms. The temple has 10 of these. And again, the predominant color is white, a symbol of purity with accents of gold and neutral colors. The lights are dimmed. In the center of the room is a small oval platform with kneeling cushions on either side. This is where a bride and a groom come to be sealed, another sacred Mormon ordinance. Mormons believe a husband and wife are sealed together for eternity. Mormon wedding ceremonies replace the words, till death do we part, with for time and all eternity. Only family members who are baptized Mormon may attend a sealing, and Only heterosexual couples may marry in the church. And while many people associate Mormons with polygamy, it's important to note here that it was practiced only for the church's first 60 years, ending in 1890. This is the place where husband and wife kneel across the altar. They join hands, and someone with authority from God can pronounce you a family uh, for time and for eternity. I'm aware that not all of us have perfect family situations. And uh, what I've come to believe and understand is that the things here are to give us an opportunity so that we can make our relationships whole. We can heal them. I had a friend who was asked to come for her father. And she said, I had a terrible relationship with my father. He was not kind to my mother, and he was not kind to me. She said, I did not want to be connected to him in eternity. And so over the course of a year, she prayed and she changed her heart so that she could feel like in this room with her father being represented by proxy, their family could be sealed, to use that word, bound together. She told me, and we're here in sacred space, so I'm telling you sacred things. She said, 
my father came back to me and he was different. He was dressed in white and he was not the same. He had changed. And that's the hope and the promise is that somehow in our human foibles and faults we have an opportunity to be better and this is a place where God gives us that opportunity. From the ceiling room, we enter the last stop on our tour, the assembly hall. This is just as it sounds, an enormous grand rectangular hall, all done in white, with a choir platform at one end and a set of pulpits and lecterns at the other. The chairs assembled are flanked by 12 large chairs on opposite sides. This is where local members would meet with church leaders from Salt Lake City, the church's international headquarters, or with leaders from other parts of the world. We don't normally go here, but I'd like you to see it because we want you to feel like you've been through the whole temple. Throughout our tour, we've been climbing up through the building. This is an intentional part of the design, that you should feel like you are ascending both levels of spiritual development while physically rising towards heaven. After our tour, I spoke with Emiliette. She is the curator of historic sites for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. She shared how the D.C. Temple came to be. We wanted to have a presence here. We'd had members of the church here really since the 19th century. But it was really only after World War II that church members started settling here in a serious way. And so in the 1960s, we started looking for a place on the East Coast to build a temple. And Washington, D.C. was really the obvious choice. I think the architects, they knew what they'd been given when they were told this is the site for the temple. They designed the temple really to be a monument and a celebration in this part of the city. Emily Utt travels to Mormon temples around the world. Most of the modern temples, those built after 1970, have similar appearances on the inside. They each have rooms dedicated for the same ordinances, the same white and bright feel, the same lack of windows, and the same vertical thrust. And there's a reason for that. For me, this temple is very rectilinear. All the lines are very vertical and very straight. But then there's key places where that straight line goes to a curve. And for me, those are places where the most important acts we do take place. So the baptistry, that font, is round. The rooms that are instruction rooms have a curve to them. The celestial room has a curve to them. And it's that reminder for me when I go to this temple that I'm now entering a place where I need to pay a little more attention. I need to be paying attention because there is something higher going on here. If you want to see the temple for yourself, it will be open to the public through June 11th. To learn more, visit dctemple.org. When we come back, my conversation with Felicia Jimenez, a board member of Black LDS Legacy, reflections on the struggles she sees in the church and how she, as a member of a predominantly white church, Find spiritual uplift and support. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices, and we'll be back after this short break.
This is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. If you're just joining, we've been enjoying a guided tour of the Washington, D.C. Temple of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. One of the things I noticed as I was walking through the various rooms and the hallways was the art on the walls. Mormon temple art is, for the most part, very literal. There are scenes of John the Baptist with Jesus in the River Jordan, of church founder Joseph Smith encountering the angel Moroni, and of Jesus and an army of angels descending to earth. But what jumped out to me was all of the people in the art I saw on the tour were white. It was a topic raised at an LDS-sponsored conference I attended in 2018. My guest Felicia Jimenez was also there. Shortly after, she published a widely read blog post about representation and the Black legacy in the LDS tradition. Jimenez herself is a Texan who was raised Baptist. She converted to the church in 2008 after meeting a missionary on a long-haul flight from Texas to San Diego. She did her mission in the Baltimore region and had her marriage sealed in the D.C. temple. And although she is Black and the LDS Church is predominantly white, Jimenez was drawn to its mission and core teachings. She is passionate about her faith and about calling her church to be anti-racist. The LDS Church, like many American religious institutions, has a painful history when it comes to race and slavery. Although founder Joseph Smith was an early abolitionist who extended the priesthood to early Black converts, The church position changed radically after Smith was murdered. His successor, Brigham Young, preached that black people bore the mark of Cain. It was a biblical reference to the book of Genesis. Young preached that blacks were therefore inferior to whites and should be subordinate to them. In 1852, the church officially banned blacks from the priesthood. That lasted for more than a century. In the wake of the civil rights movement, the church began studying its race relations and theology. They formed what was called the Genesis Group, led by a group of black LDS members. After their dialogue with the church, LDS President Spencer Kimball said he received a revelation and reversed the ban and extended the priesthood to black men in 1978. The black LDS group, which organized five years ago, follows in the tradition of the Genesis Group, but today, its mission has evolved. Felicia Jimenez explains. Our mission is to unify the Black community and anyone who supports it. So we do that through any kind of spiritual uplift, cultural celebration, um, historical inspiration, and restorative healing and connection with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we love to participate in specifically and geared towards our Black community. How have things changed in the last five years? Um, You know, just this is kind of difficult because in this moment, I'm going to speak for myself and not the organization. Um, I don't feel that there has been a lot of growth in that department. I think they've done things like worked with the NAACP, um, but we haven't really seen a lot of fruits of those labors. I think that a lot of members of our board would say the same thing. They don't feel like a lot of progress has been made, Um, specifically things that Blacks and African-Americans in particular would like to see in the church. I want to bring your attention to a change that the LDS Church made in 2020 to its general handbook, Mm -hmm. in which it was explicit, stating that a person standing with God depends on devotion to commandments, not the color of their skin. 
Now, at the time, that was two years ago, you did speak out publicly welcoming the change, but warning that words are not alone. Mm-hmm. As a leader and a board member of the Black LDS Project, from your vantage point, did the change in 2020 have an impact on the conversation? For me in particular, I would say um, not really. What I'm learning is that a lot of people, we are starting from fundamentally in a different place of what racism is. And so a church that is predominantly white will view, um, the majority of the time, will view racism as calling someone names or overt discriminatory practices, right? Um, Telling someone, well, you can't do this because you're black or, or because you're, you know, Latina or because you're this or that. Uh, And so when those things are not happening and when they are implicit and when they are covert, then our members and also leaders of the church go, well, that's not a thing. That's not happening here. And members, specifically black members, are saying, no, that absolutely happens. We haven't done a good enough job to to break those things down and say, hey, these are things we are no longer teaching and we need this to be understood that anyone Teaching this is not in compliance with the gospel. They are not in compliance with being a Christian and and so on and so forth. It sounds, though, like the struggle has to do with other behaviors or actions that might not be so visible. Correct. Help me understand. Can you explain like what that an example of what that would look like? Absolutely. So um, in the past, our church, there were lots of church teachings that said whenever we go to heaven, Um, that the curse of Cain would be lifted and we would all be white. So that is no longer explicitly taught in the church. Somewhere, however, the older generation does still believe that. So what ends up happening is you have an entire generation that believes that race is not a big deal or race is not important because, hello, in the end, we're all going to be white. That curse is going to be lifted from you. What you're experiencing right now is a curse from your ancestors. Even though our doctrine explicitly states that we will not um, be held accountable for Adam's transgressions nor our ancestors' sins. So it's just this, this paradox because when you do that, now the way you treat others, uh, it might not be explicit, but you have these values and these beliefs that you hold that are no longer um, being taught and that have never been accurate from day one. We'll hear, you guys are so hung up on race, but when we go to heaven, like everybody's going to be white and you don't have to worry about that or, you know, that there's that this drastic change is going to happen after this life. And so until um, those things which are inherently racist are rooted out and being taught and told, hey, When we taught that, that was not accurate. Anyone teaching that now is not in compliance with the gospel. Um, And so we have to move forward and there has to be consequences for those things if it's continuing to be taught after we've said that you cannot do that and these are not accurate. So we haven't gotten to that point yet. So that's where the difficulty lies in, in these conversations because we have members that are upholding things that are just not accurate. Having just done the the D.C. Temple tour, the pictures, the images... I don't recall seeing paintings in which the individuals who were being depicted as anything but white. I'm curious how you see the relationship in the art that is in the temple. It was a subject that was very um, near and dear to me because it is very frustrating to go into what we feel is our father's house 
and to not have pictures of yourself. If I'm looking at all the angels in this picture, you're letting me know that all the angels are white, that everyone that reaches angelhood or whatever it is or whoever, you know, shouted and jumped for joy when Jesus was coming to earth or whatever it is, is white. So where are the children that look like me? I wrote this blog post and I said, if you went to someone's home, right, and they have four children, and yet all you saw in the home were of one child, and that was little Timmy. They had his kindergarten graduation, his high school graduation, his little t-ball and all the things, and then the other three children were missing. You would think there was something oddly, like, off, right, about this family. You would actually feel extremely uncomfortable. And they're just walking you through their house, right? Giving you a tour. This is Timmy here. This is Timmy there. And then you're sitting here like, okay, but you also have three other children. Where are they? There's a painting now going around in several temples of a black woman and she's kneeling to pray. And so everyone will say, oh my goodness, I thought about your blog post and I saw this picture and, you know, I thought about you. And I'm like, yeah, like that's one picture. Like you got to go through an entire building and see yourself everywhere. And then I'm supposed to be thankful for this one picture in some obscure place in the temple. So again, that is where these blind sides and these blind spots are in the church where you have this church that has members across the globe. This is not in a U.S. church. You know what I'm saying? Like we have on in every continent where there are people, our church is there. Do you, you understand what I'm saying? And so whenever we are sitting here and we look at these pictures and, and we don't have Asians depicted, we don't have our indigenous population, um, we don't have Africans, we don't have, like, there is a problem. And so these are absolutely the things that we are talking about that need to change. I hear you're really passionate about this and you see representation mm-hmm. on, you know, in the art, a reflection and speaking to kind of a deeper sense of belonging. Mm-hmm. At the press conference when the D.C. Temple Media Day uh, was taking place, Dr. Amos Brown, who is a member of the NAACP board and not a member of, of mm-hmm. the church, uh, but a Christian, spoke passionately and in, in strong support of the mm-hmm. church and particularly in his relationship to President um, Russell mm-hmm. Nelson. And he spoke of the financial commitment that the church is making towards scholarships to HBCUs mm-hmm. and a fellowship that's made in his name for an upcoming trip to Ghana. My question for you is, are the types of actions and the words of Dr. Amos Brown, do they speak to you and to your organization? Is it enough? You know, the the question for me is, I would ask someone, would you rather have someone who gave you money or someone who actually spent time teaching you life lessons and who mentored you. I do not want to say in any shape, form or fashion that what the church is doing is bad or wrong or anything like that. Please give as much money as possible to HBCUs. Please give as much money to, you know, all all of the other efforts, the humanitarian efforts and all the things that that's great. But also there are things that need to be done the D.C. Temple, Amarine, I just want you to know, has a very um, significant and, you know, important place in my heart. I was married in that temple. I actually served my mission in the Baltimore, Maryland mission. So that that temple I saw all the time. Um, and so there's a lot of significance there for me. And for you to, you know, say that even now in one of the most diverse areas in all of America, 
the members that go there still can't see themselves in the temple. I mean, cool that you're giving to HBCUs. I think that that's beautiful. I want them to continue that. But I also feel that there's just so much work to be doing. And sometimes we um, like blindness comes by looking beyond the mark. That's how I feel. What kind of actions would make you feel like the organization is moving forward? What are one or two things that you would like to see church leaders engage? Sure. Uh, So I think one uh, really big thing is to start with an apology, because I feel that a lot of black members are sitting in the church. This is not all. Some are like, oh, that doesn't pertain to me. I don't care. And that's fine for you. But there are a lot of members that are hurting and that want to feel healing through the church saying, hey, for this amount of years, we blocked black people from receiving the priesthood. Um, This affected families being together forever. We have practices that we were not able to participate in. And there was never an apology for the for the implementing of those racist policies. And so a lot of us are waiting for the church to acknowledge wrongdoing in that and to say, hey, this actually was not revelation from God. God is actually not racist. Um, We have had leaders that misinterpreted things and therefore discriminatory practices were in place. And we apologize for that. I believe it was last year we had an issue where some incorrect racist doctrine was taught in our brand new Come Follow Me manual. And so the church basically, instead of sending out this statement, this memo to all the congregations and saying, hey, you need to tell your congregation that we no longer believe in these things, that anyone teaching this again is not in compliance with the gospel. You are not aligned with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But instead, they said, hey, we'll just kind of leave it up to you guys to figure out what you want to do with it. And because we have leaders that are not comfortable discussing racist things, that are not comfortable discussing the history of the church, many of them just swept it under the rug and said, hey, um, only use the one that's online, but don't use the one that's in the manual. So the first thing would be to apologize. And the second thing would be action to continue to acknowledge at every single turn where these things happen. This is not what we do as an organization. This is not what we do as the Church of Christ. So if we want to be an anti-racist church as opposed to a non-racist church, then there are things that we have to explicitly do to be anti-racist. As you get ready to gather as an organization in May, what's on the agenda for the Black LDS organization that you are a part of? What are you hoping to accomplish when you gather together in May? Um, specifically we are focusing on is how rich of a heritage um, we come from is, right? Um, How rich that is and our traditional ways of worship, um, how we as Black people have enjoyed and felt the spirit. Everything we do in our revival this year is going to be centered on Black joy. And so um, if it does not bring black joy, we are not talking about it. We don't have time to talk about what the church is doing or what they haven't been doing. Um, To make a long story short, this division that is being caused strictly by people who refuse to mourn with those that mourn and comfort those that stand in need of comfort, um, which is a big doctrine within our church. So it is causing this division of black people and other ethnicities having to figure out ways to go back to our original 
roots of worship and congregating in ways that are comfortable for us, where we can shout and praise and we can do our amens and we can say all these things that are comfortable for us because our church is a very quiet church. Our way of filling the spirit is through music and through hallelujahs and amens. um, And that's what we plan to bring for this revival. So anyone who uh, is here, who will be visiting who will be fellowshipping with us that day. That is what we plan on bringing to you is black church through the revival of our spirits and all the things that we need. And we have zero desire to talk about what the church is or is not doing. For those mm-hmm. unfamiliar um, and who've never attended, what what is what's what is Listen, a revival? Amber, and you, you really hit it because for black folks, we are so used to going to um, revivals and we're there all day and, you know, we're sweating and we're singing and we're worshiping. Um, and it is exactly what it sounds like. It is a revival of the spirit. It is to to revive something within you. And that is what we plan on doing. So you are correct. Um, revival is not a word that I don't think I've ever heard it. I've been a member since 2008. I don't think I've ever heard that word um, used, especially in the in the way in which, you know, people in the South and specifically black people are familiar with revivals. So, yeah, we are we're really excited about it. If you've never been to a revival, you should come to ours. We are going to talk about symbols um, and materials, things that have been passed down from generation to generation, our traditions, our culture. One thing I don't want to forget is that revival is about liberation. It is about freeing yourself. It is about understanding what that even means. What does it mean to free yourself in Christ, you know, and to free yourself from shackles that you're in right now that maybe you didn't even know. Felicia Jimenez lives in Dallas, Texas. She's a board member of Black LDS Legacy. You can find links to their website in this week's show notes. That's all for this week's show. If you're interested in learning more about the D.C. Temple or about our guests, head over to our episode page at interfaithradio.org. While you're there, you can learn about us, read the show notes, check out our archives, and sign up for the newsletter. You can also listen to this program on a podcast app of your choice. Just search Interfaith Voices wherever you listen. This episode was produced by me, Kimberly Winston, and Kevin McCarthy. A special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler, for her vision, and MC Yogi for our theme music. Additional music by Blue Dot Sessions and Audio Binger. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices. We rely on the generous support of our listeners to bring you this show. Wherever you are, I hope you are well, I hope you are safe, and I hope you stay connected. I'll see you next week.